You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're starting a two-part interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. He's come up again and again in my research into topics for the show, and he's a well-known name in the field of religious studies. Don't worry, we will get to some monsters in the discussion, but one of my resolutions for last year was to talk to more people who have a different viewpoint about these topics that we're so into. And to do so politely and reasonably. And to that end, I've reached out to several folks in this field of weird stuff studies and had some very interesting conversations. I intend to continue that into 2023, and I'm finding value in it. Most of these conversations are not recorded, but when it's appropriate to do so and the results are interesting, I will include them here. For now, let's get to the chat with Dr. Jeff Kripal about a whole bunch of things. Monster Talk. All right, tonight we're talking with Jeffrey J. Kripal, who holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. And he is the author of numerous books, including Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal, Authors of the Impossible, The Paranormal and the Sacred, and The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, which he co-wrote with Whitley Strieber. And finally, the book we'll be talking about some tonight, The Superhumanities. 
And when I attended the Gods and Monsters conference that Joe Laycock and Natasha Michaels put together in 2019, I ran into several of Jeff's students who kept urging me to talk to him. But I wanted to do some prep work first, so I did. Uh, I had to do a bunch of reading, and I, I, I had to go through a pandemic and a few other, <laughs> a few other yeah, things. We all did. We all did. It, it took a minute, but here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah, it took two and a half years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Blake. Now, I'm guessing you probably haven't had time to check out any of our back catalog. So I wanted to do something a little unusual, which is I wanted to tell you a little bit about me and Karen. Uh, actually, I'd let Karen talk about herself. But just because I, I think as I've listened to your interviews and read your books, uh, I know that there is a kind of skeptical person um, who is a real kind of person. It's not a straw man, but there's a kind of skeptical person who just dismisses everything out of hand. And I, I think uh, Karen and I really strive to be what we think of as really methodologically skeptical, but it's super open-minded. Um, and we actually mm -hmm. try to test claims when we can. Uh, and we always, I, 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 we try to approach claims with what, um, what is it we call it? The um, presumption of sincerity, right? I think is the way we usually term it. Both Karen and I both come from different backgrounds. And speaking only for myself, I come from um, mm -hmm. a Southern Baptist, super fundamentalist family. And my conversion from that sort of thinking to deep skepticism was a long journey. Uh, it was, it, and I'm not angry about the church or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I, I still think there's lots of value there. It's just, I've moved out of there, uh, philosophically, mentally, it doesn't work for me anymore. And I only really, here I am, I just turned 53 and I only just explained all this to my dad, <laughs> like in December, right? So, <laughs> wow, that was like a week, that was a week ago, Blake. Yeah, it was really recently. It was really, really recently. And uh, another and, minute. Yeah, <laughs> it was very nice. though. he he wrote me a letter asking me to take my family back to church and get right with God, and I had to politely explain that my departure from the church was not from a lack of exposure to to biblical studies. It was from probably overexposure. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I got too deep into the history of things and how things work and instead of the other direction. And, but, but I, I still, you know, have a strong affinity for the religious, the supernatural. I just have ended up being super skeptical, but I'll let Karen introduce herself. Yeah. Oh, so I'm Karen Stolzno. And as you can tell, I come from Australia originally. I've been in the States for a couple of decades now, but where I grew up was in Sydney and my family we're secular. The country is leans towards secular as well. And uh, at the same time, my parents were fine with me exploring world religions and just learning whatever I, I was interested in. And uh, Blake wanted me to mention a book that he is actually part of that I wrote a couple of years ago. It's called Would well, You Believe It? And it is about the experiences of skeptics, experiences that they, they are not able to explain. So there's a wide range of uh, phenomena which are treated in the book. Some people have written about ghost experiences or time travel or even healing people, and uh, they can't explain exactly what's happened to them. So they posit natural explanations for what's happened, but at the same time, they still don't have a definitive answer. I have some interesting contributors to the book. Like I said, Blake, uh, also the uh, mentalist Banachek, if you're familiar with him, and James Randi, too. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with him. So he 
includes a story in the book uh, about something strange that happened to him. So, yeah, that's it. I think Blake is right. Uh, we see skeptics of the nature that he just described as being more cynics than true skeptics, and uh, we try to, to keep an open mind. Yeah, my my distinction is between true skeptics and debunkers, and it sounds to me like you're skeptics in a, in a, the classical philosophical sense, which which is wonderful. It's great. We can talk. Let's talk about that as you, as we go here. I believe someone once said, "For all of sin to come short of the glory of God," uh, and I feel the same way <laughs> about lots of things where the, we have these ideas that we want to aspire to, and they are aspirational. I I think you know America is, claims to be the you know the home of freedom. And that's clearly an aspiration, not a reality. And likewise, we want to Ideal. be right. We want to be skeptics who are open-minded. Sometimes we fall short, but uh, I think we're doing the best we can. And uh, yeah, we keep trying. We do, and and I, and I think we have a tremendous sympathy and excitement for people who experience these, you know. Quasi supernatural, supernatural, supernormal, paranormal, the numinous, all that sort of stuff. I and every now and then it happens to me. You know, I, I as a skeptic, I don't. I have to sort of make sense of things in the, their own way. But like I've seen shadow people. I've had you know lots of strange dreams. I'm surrounded by coincidence all the time. It's a wonder I'm not into synchromysticism as much as that happens. That sort of thing. So I, I it's just. Mm -hmm. It's just the framework of skepticism and, you know, a deep interest in science uh, has brought me here. But I also grew up as uh, an English major and a writer and I'm into the humanities. So we're going to have a fun chat here. I feel like that's probably enough front loading. Yeah, stop talking about us. <laughs> we brought you here uh, because of this new book, The Superhumanities. But your position mm -hmm. is in the field of religious studies. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into that field? Yeah, I mean, it it very much relates to both of your stories. I am, um, as I like to say, nobody really, nobody grows up wanting to be a professor of religion. That's 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 a weird kid. I think what happens to most of us, and certainly what happened to me, is we grow up, we grow up in a religious tradition, and we have some question that we want to ask, and the tradition either can't answer it or won't even ask the question. And we sort of back up into the academy as the only place, really, in, in Western culture where you can take religion seriously but not actually believe what it says. And so scholars of religion in general are extremely skeptical of the religions they study but they also take very seriously the religious impulse that, that people have. So they they inhabit this kind of third space is what I'm trying to get at. It's it's neither believing nor nor debunking, but it's also it's often what we call reductive, um, which means we we reduce things to some kind of social context or or psychological need. Um, so I don't I don't know if that answers your question, but I I got into the field, you know. In a in a in a kind of I backed into it. I'll put it that way. Well, I believe that you've had some interesting experiences uh, that you have focused on Hindu and uh, the the Indian Indian religions, yeah. Um, and that you've had a interesting sexual religious vision as well, and yeah. uh, that you've been hunted by Hindu fundamentalists. If you could tell us a little bit more about these yeah. details, yeah. No, I'm happy to. So I 
You know, I grew up in the American Midwest. I grew up in Nebraska, and I grew up in a Roman Catholic German farming community, about 1,800 people. And I became a super pious, super religious as a an adolescent for a variety of reasons. And I ended up in a Catholic seminary um, that was run by the, some Benedictine monks. It was, at a, it was at a monastery, actually, in Missouri. And I became, I was just a kid, you know, I was a kid from Nebraska. I mean, what did I, I didn't know anything about anything. And I became fascinated that most of the young men who were in the seminary were, were essentially closeted gay men. And by that, I, I don't mean that they were doing anything sexual, but they were clearly oriented sexually towards other men. And so I, I came to the conclusion that this whole notion of celibacy or, or giving up heterosexuality for the sake of God wasn't what it looked like. It was more complicated than that. And I was fascinated by the kind of external homophobia of the Roman Catholic Church and yet the kind of inside homoeroticism of it. There was, a, there was a clear and obvious difference between the two. I happened to be straight. I was sexually confused, but I was straight at the end of the day. And so I left the seminary. I ended up leaving Catholicism, and I got interested in Hinduism because I wanted to see if there were other ways for being a heterosexual male that did not involve a kind of second-class citizenship, which is what you get in Roman Catholicism. And so that's what took me to India, and I studied a saint there named Ramakrishna, he died in 1886, and it turned out um, that he himself was really flamboyantly homoerotic as well. And so I wrote about that in a very sensitive but very profound and provocative way and that was my first, that was my dissertation actually that was my first book came out in 1995 called Collie's Child and it essentially got me canceled to use the the language today i was essentially targeted by the right wing of, of hinduism and was became kind of the poster boy for the harassed and censored academic in the 90s um so that was my entry into the field my entry into the field actually was as you know a kind of minor Salman Rushdie. I I was the, I was the sexual reductionist. I was the evil psychoanalyst. I was the skeptic. I was the colonialist. I was all the bad things that you didn't want to be um, for the for these individuals. So that that's really how I began my my intellectual life. Wow. Well, I know. Yeah. At one point, you had talked about. Uh, and I say at one point, uh, it, I listened to a lot of interviews to prepare for this one. Let me back up and just say I'm super interested in the early days of computing, uh, especially around the modern personal computer. Yeah. And um, and I'm familiar with the Stanford Research Institute and finally yeah. got to go out there and check that out. But the place that we think about as being sort of one of the birthplaces of modern computing is also where uh, Putoff and Targ were working with Uri Geller and where you get the first systemization of remote viewing. And it's all this um, sort of mixture between high tech and high concept, I guess would be one way of putting it. 
and also the culture of uh, the human potential movement and EST. All these things were kind of going on at the same time in California. It was this amazing mix of new technologies and new ideas. And some of that is kind of tied up with the Esalen Institute, which you're affiliated with now, I think. Uh, and I think they gave you safe harbor for a while or a place to sort of get away from some of this stuff you're talking about. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? So all of that, all of those people you mentioned, of course, I know most of them. And those connections are all still very much active and alive. What happened to kind of carry on our story is these assaults on my integrity and these band movements started in 96 and they ran through the early 2000s. And by that time, I had decided that I couldn't do this anymore emotionally. It was it was affecting my health. Um, I was having post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, and I, I made the decision that I had to leave the field in which I was trained, which was Indian languages and, and cultures. And Esalen, what happened was Mike Murphy, who co-founded Esalen, read the same book in 1998 and became so enthused by it. He was so moved by it that he called me up late one night um, in my home, actually, in Pennsylvania, and invited me out there. And so I went out there late in 98, and I kept going out there. And I, I felt that no one, no historian of religions had really looked at the human potential movement and that there was a book to be written there and that I could use all my training in Asian religions, but do it essentially with uh, a human potential movement where, you know, they sit naked in hot tubs. They weren't going to kill me for talking about sexuality. They, they were probably going to say too much and want me to write about things I couldn't write about. So I very consciously and intentionally decided to write a history of the human potential movement. And that became my book um, called Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion, which came out in 07. And it was really that book that then got me into what we now call the paranormal. Because while I was researching that book, I was talking to all these people who were telling me all these stories. And I realized that academics had no real way of taking any of these stories seriously and that these people were very serious. And I got really interested in how the paranormal had essentially been taken off the table in the humanities and the sciences. And that one thing led to another. And, and that's kind of how why we're sitting here right now is I, I wrote a whole series of books on the intellectual history of the paranormal and where that comes from and actually how scientists and intellectuals originally coined all those terms and and then they they migrate into the popular culture of the 20th and now 21st century grand canyon university's rn to bsn online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are leaving room for what matters achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I haven't read that book, but I'm really curious about that because it reminds me conceptually of this like this idea of you know taking ideas from other religions or te- you know using them like technologies to put together right. a, a framework of functional concepts. I can't help but think that reminds me of theosophy to a large extent, and it's like is theosophy something that's discussed there or is that just an entirely separate concept or how does, you know, is, am I wrong in making those connections? No, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, you know, theosophy, it's a, it's a lot to say there. I mean, you're invoking my professorial side here. I I can give you lectures on theosophy and the human potential movement. I'll, I'll hold back there. Theosophy is a 19th century movement. And it's really what sparks interest in other religions in Europe and and the U.S. And the theosophists are kind of the the early scholars of comparative religion. Theosophy is founded by a, a Russian um, woman named um, Madame Blavatsky in the in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, and they're really the ones who get the comparative study of religion going in a lot of ways. The comparative study of religion then develops for, you know, a half a century or so. And then the American counterculture starts out in the, you know, the 1960s. And the human potential movement then is centered in at Esalen in Big Sur, California. And it basically takes this comparative way of thinking about religion and it turns it into I think what most people would think of as modern spirituality. Um, so it's not it's not really theosophy, but it's I guess it's deeper histor some of its historical roots are theosophical, but it goes back further as well into people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and and, and the transcendentalists. I mean, we can go back as far as we want, but theosophy is certainly one one moment in the 19th and 20th century where this kind of comparative thinking takes root. I would say theosophy is less disciplined, Blake. Um, the human potential movement was, in fact, quite skeptical of religious claims. One of the sayings at Esalen was, no one captures the flag, uh, which essentially meant there are there are no gurus here. There There is no single religious truth to be had. We're, we're here to experiment and to think. That is not what a theosophist in the 19th century would have said. Um, so I do think there's a difference, but but there's there's clearly a connection as well. 
It's interesting, I, I think, because what <laughs> one of the things that reminds me of it, I think, uh, I, my, my, off the top of my head, my names are not coming to me, but uh, Charles Ledbetter had proposed a yeah. uh, a young man that he wanted to be sort of a... Uh, Krishnamurti. Yes, Krishnamurti, who was going to be the uh, new world leader, who rejected that idea, yet ended up spending a lot of his time in California as well. Right. And it's like, it all it all reminded me of that sort of... The center, uh, maybe nexus is the right word. This nexus of new ideas, of all the hopes of America, of like religious ideas coming there. It's not like the burned over region, but it seemed like a lot of ideas were coming together at this in this sort of geographical sense, which is just fascinating to me. Um, and I think California still culturally holds that sort of spot in in America, where you know people still think it was being a, a place of wacky ideas, yet also. Where we pin all our hopes for the future technology is going to solve all our pro- problems. <laughs> well, yeah, you know when I when I wrote that history, the subtitle of, of the book is "America and the Religion of No Religion," and the idea is is that secularism is really necessary and is really part of the foundation of these movements that can then use the mind and use the heart to pick and choose among the different religions and put things together in new ways. Um, and that's what's very California-ish about it. Having said that, the whole history of religions is like that too, though. I mean, if you look at ancient religion in the Mediterranean region, they're putting bits and pieces together as well in, and coming up with new religions, including religions like Christianity, by the way, which is put together with a little Judaism and a little Roman religion and a little of this and a little of that. So I, I think the the idea that religions are one thing is largely an illusion. And this putting bits and pieces together to form new cultural collages is, is actually how things work historically. Everything's a remix. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, Jeff, I think we should start talking about what is real and what's not real. So this is a broad question. How do you decide what's real and what's not real? Well, that's a big philosophical question. I I think we live in a culture that's very scientific and very technological, and we tend to conflate reality with what can be established in a scientific experiment or with a mathematical equation. We tend to think of reality as something that's out there, that's that's not in our heads, as it were, and that is shared in some way, that, that isn't a function of a single person's experience. I think that's useful. Um, I think that's very helpful if you're building refrigerators or cars or, or airplanes or something. I, I think it's quite devastating when it comes to a worldview, because it ends up explaining everything but us. It, it can't explain consciousness or, or subjectivity or mind. And so I think that, that question about what is real kind of gets at the heart of this whole thing. And I think the humanities, to, to kind of push us into, I think, a future question, the humanities at their best is, is, is really a query about what, what is real what what is the nature of reality and how does the human mind fit into that um so i 
I don't have an answer to that, Karen. I mean, obviously, if I had an answer, I'd be a different kind of person. But I don't. I don't. I don't think. All of us. I don't think that's what the humanities are. I don't think it's about having answers. I think it's about forming better and better questions. I know. I know. In the book, I think you talk about well. There's two terms that come up a lot, and, and one is to do with epistemology. Yeah. Which, which I think is how we know, or how we decide what we know, or yeah. something. And then the other is ontology. And, yeah. And uh, I decided pretty early on as I was reading the book not to use that as a drinking game or I would die. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let's talk about epistemology. What? And I know this probably evolves, but currently what's your epistemology? What's your personal? Like, how do you decide? Is And, and do you think, like, is belief a choice or is it something you build up experientially or where does that come from? Well, so to go, to kind of go back to what, Karen was talking about, I, I wrote a book um, four or five years ago called The Flip. And it's about the, essentially the mystical experiences of scientists, engineers, and medical professionals who start out as hard-nosed materialists, and then they have some kind of extraordinary experience, and they flip. They, they adopt some kind of idealist worldview in which mind or, or consciousness is primary. I... You know, if you give me gave me enough beers and back me into a corner in a dark alley somewhere, I I would probably say, at the end of the day, I'm a dual aspect monist. By which I mean, I think there's reality is one thing, but I don't think that one thing is either mental or material. I think the world splits up into a mental and a material dimension because of us. We we are the splitters. We, when we know the world, we split it up into a set of material objects out there and a set of mental states in here. And so it's, epi- it's epistemically dual because of us, but it's actually ontologically one. It's, it's, it's one thing or non-thing that's neither mental nor material, or it's both mental and material at the same time. And that that's really been my answer or my my best guess for about a decade now. And I should say I came to that with a quantum physicist named Harold Ottmanschbacher, who has taught me a lot about physics. Um, he's he's He taught at Zurich for, for, for decades and is now retired. But that that's my best shot. I know that's a bit philosophical and a bit abstract, but that's what I think is ultimately real to answer Karen's question is, I think reality is ultimately one one thing and that we then split it into two things by virtue of us being bodies and brains in, in, a, in, in a world. Interesting. So <laughs> this is going to be fun. I'm really excited about this. Okay, so uh, I think you and I are both in agreement that Max Weber's idea that the world has been disenchanted and that people are seeking re-enchantment is not right, that the world never really got disenchanted. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, because this is definitely a topic we're going to be diving deeper into more in 2023. Yeah, so, I mean, this dual aspect monism I just tried to set out, it's actually really important, because when I think about, like, let's take paranormal experiences, let's take something really wild, like, um, you know, wild coincidences, um, where things just happen in the physical environment that correspond seemingly perfectly to something going on in the mind or, 
or the the subjectivity of the the person to me that those make a lot of sense those are are signals of this dual aspect monism the the mental and the material world are actually not separate at all um and when we have these kind of synchronicities what's happening is this that this correspondence is becoming obvious to someone um but it's always being translated through the imagination and the psyche of the person who's splitting the world into two. And this is why people have such hard time with paranormal experiences is they're so imaginatively wild. Um, but if you look at them and you listen to people long enough, what you begin to realize is that what they're about on one level is the fact that the world is one thing and everything's connected to everything else. Um, and so that's to get to Weber. I don't, I don't think the world was ever disenchanted because I think it's always been one world and it always is appearing to these human splitters as one world. And that's what enchantment is. That's what magic is. And disenchantment is when, you know, people believe that they're completely separate from the world and they believe that they're these individual egos or these individual identities that are split off from one another and, and can never be the same thing when in fact they are the same thing. <laughs> I'm reminded, uh, I, I went to uh, Falk, Arkansas in uh, a few years back uh, because I wanted to go look into the Falk monster, which is a kind of a Southeastern United States Bigfoot story. And yeah. as we rolled into this little town of Falk, I, I noticed the population sign said, uh, I think 800 people. And we passed five different Protestant churches on the way into town. And there were more there. Yeah. Um, uh, and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, we do nothing better than dividing. Like we, <laughs> we yeah. are so good <laughs> at finding ways to split. It is so much easier to split yeah. than to stay together. Yep. So <laughs> that's amazing yeah. to me. With a small pool. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like, well, I mean, we can always find reasons yeah. for, you know, it's all aspirational, but you know, I think we can all agree that we disagree. <laughs> Anyway, I this Maybe is not. <laughs> well, speaking of split, that we're going to break the episode in half here. So, um mm -hmm. we uh yeah. we're going to now start talking about the book Superhumanities. Uh but yeah. uh, if you're listening to part 1 of this, please tune in next week for part 2. Uh I thank you again for listening to part 1. And then we don't really have to do anything here except start talking about the next question. But uh, for our listeners, this would be a cool yeah. breaking point. I'm, we're still getting used to this, Jeff. We just switched from a one-hour format to a 30-minute format, and now we're weekly instead of bi-weekly. So I'm still kind of getting my head wrapped around all this. So thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard the first part of our two-part interview with Dr. Jeff Kripal about his new book, Superhumanities. In part two, we'll be getting more into his views on the humanities and the core of his book. But today, you heard about how he got into religious studies and a little bit about his work looking into the Esalen Institute and the book he wrote about that, which I will definitely be giving a read. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Subtext. The Projection Booth, and The Daily Meditation Podcast. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com.
Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Subtext, The Projection Booth, and The Daily Meditation Podcast. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for making our show a part of your listening life. Hope to see you next week. been a monster house presentation what if i told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy coq10 levels with two chews a day the new super beats heart chews advanced is now supercharged with coq10 that's like getting coq10 for free our powerful blend of beetroot grapeseed extract and coq10 supports your cardiovascular health visit radiobeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.